based on my own experience, my advice is even if you're going to get started just on Airbnb, have a plan from day one to get on other OTAs and have a direct booking website. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more direct bookings. I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on targeting previous guests, host targeting previous guests and trying to get previous, finding different strategies, marketing to return guests. And yeah, a lot more focus on, on direct booking. Everybody want to get the bag, but y'all don't really know what it's going to take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue Jill's about to show you the way. Cause we're top finance and amortizing and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding up there, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this web cause we're dropping Blue Jill's. JB dropping Blue Jill's. AG dropping Blue Jill's. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing, blue gems. Let's go. Another episode of Blue Gems Podcast with Brindy Bringhurst. Air Brindy is her name on IG, and she is just really crushing it. She's been in the game for six years now. Brindy, I'll turn it over to you. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about you getting started in this business and why you chose short-term rentals. Awesome. Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. Um, and I got started, I was working a full-time job as a project manager at a tech startup and loving it and also interested in different ways I could earn a little extra side income. So I bought my first house in 2015 and the March Madness NCAA basketball tournament was going to be hosted in Phoenix where I bought my home that year. And it was actually my mom who said, you know, what if you tried to earn a little extra money putting your home up on Airbnb. Maybe you just did it during the basketball tournament. I had talked to her a lot about Airbnb because I was enjoying staying in Airbnb so much when I was traveling. She had never heard of it at the time, but she was the one who said, you know, what, if, what if you did that? So that's where it all began. And here I am six years later. <laughs> that's awesome. So, so you're doing it full-time now, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So two years ago, January 3rd of 2020 to be exact was when I quit my job and started pursuing my Airbnb short-term rental business full-time. Yeah, yeah. Congrats. Let's dive into that a little bit. Let's get a little granular because I think a lot of people are going to resonate with that, right? A lot of our listeners are either trying to supplement their income or they're trying to leave their W-2s. So like, how was that transition for you? Like, What were some of the hurdles that you had to get over? Because I can only imagine how scary that is. You know, A lot of people are facing that fear of like, hey, you have this comfortability with your W-2. How do I leave this set income? You know, What were the challenges that you had to face to overcome? those things. When I put my home first on Airbnb, it was simply to earn a little bit of extra income. I didn't have plans to quit my full-time job. I knew that eventually that was something I wanted to do for my life. I just didn't really plan on doing it a couple of years. I, I didn't plan on doing it as soon as I did. You know What happened was I put it on Airbnb and only Airbnb. My parents live an hour away so I could easily stay with them while I rented out my home and just was an experiment. And then I was surprised by how much interest the home immediately got. I was pleasantly surprised by how much extra income I was making. And I pretty quickly realized that I needed to spend more time on this. And having the commitment of a 9 to 5 job where I had to show up and be there, you know, quickly realized that that was going to be pretty tough to balance with if I wanted to pursue my Airbnb business any further. I think the biggest challenge was figuring out how to 
handle that gap in between quitting my job before I had the full income to replace that W-9 job. And a lot of the wisdom that I heard at the time was, you know, don't quit your job until you have, until you're making enough money on your side gig to cover your full salary. And I thought that sounded like pretty sound wisdom (laughs) at the time, but that's not what I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I quit my job with just, I was managing, I had my own home and then I was managing another house for an owner who I just serendipitously connected with. I was probably earning you know, 20% of my salary for those two properties after all of my expenses. But I saw enough potential in it and I was excited enough about it that I decided to take the leap. Yeah. So what does your portfolio look like now that, you know, you can support yourself just uh, two years into the game of being without that W-2 income? So I have 13 properties and it's a pretty even split between the three of them. I'm doing a lot of different strategies right now. I think moving forward, I'm trying to streamline things. That's that's the process I'm in right now is streamlining and kind of choosing what's working best and just doing more of that. But currently, I have a portfolio of 13 properties. A couple of them are rental arbitrage, where I work directly with the owner, have permission to Airbnb, have their support to rent out the home. And a couple of them I manage as a co-host or property manager. And then a couple of them I own myself. That's where I'm at now. And then also I do some coaching. And I I kind of fell into that. I'm an Airbnb ambassador. Just started getting a lot of questions and realizing a lot of people had the same questions. So I started an Instagram page just to help myself get organized about answering some of those questions. And so a little bit of income also comes in through coaching and helping others get started. Amazing. Yeah. And how many students do you have right now for the coaching? I mean, I've helped hundreds of people through the Airbnb Ambassador Program. I think I'm, gosh, yeah, two two fifty somewhere around there wow. um, that I've helped answer questions and help launch their first property on just Airbnb, and then probably have about sixty students that I've helped through one on one coaching or in person. I've done some of that here locally too in Phoenix. And so, do you teach all three strategies: co hosting, arbitrage, and owning? Yeah, my coaching is focused more on just helping somebody launch their first home, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's something that they are managing for another owner. Uh, Maybe it's something that they purchase. So it's really just around design strategies, uh, guest communication strategies, pricing strategies, revenue management. The rental arbitrage has been a really interesting one for me. And it's not something I'm committed to long-term. I'll just be super (laughs) honest about that. Um, The couple of properties that I happened on have been a good deal for me. But it's not a strategy I'm super comfortable teaching and promoting because it's risky. At least with a property you own, it's something that you're investing on. Where like a rental property, if you have a bad month, like you are left holding the bag. And I, that's not something I've totally comfortable. You know, I know there's other coaches there that are that have figured it out or figured different strategies, but that's not the one that I'm pushing. I do help people set up co-hosting and property management business, you know, find those clients, figure out how to grow. I share what's worked for me and then also helping people kind of think through what is a good investment, what is a good property to, to purchase, what makes sense, what doesn't, what are the questions to ask, where can you look for good data and yeah, what what is a good investment for a short-term rental and what's not. So what would you say is the first step, right? For someone wanting to get that first property, they come to you, they say, Hey, where do I even begin? Yeah. So first question is, I mean, do you have capital? Is there, do you have, do you have something that, are you in a position to purchase a home? If someone's in in a position to purchase a home, I think that's a great first, first step. 
but a lot of people aren't. And I think it's really important to be realistic about, you know, it, it takes a lot of money to buy a home and furnish it and, and get it off. That's always the first the first question to really understand what kind of resources they're working with, what kind of capital they have. And if they don't have a lot of capital, then I think that's where I really focus on, you know, work your network. And it's something that is, to me, when people were telling me that a few years ago, it's like, okay, I hear that all the time. That sounds like a cliche. Like, is that really what you do? But for me, it has been. Like every client I'm currently working with are it's been through word of mouth and it's been through my very first realtor who I bought my very first home with. I mean the connect you know, him referring me to different people, my lender referring me to other people, really working those relationships and connections, you know, people who I did start managing for, giving them different little tidbits that they could share with their network and, and really working that. So that's something that I really share with people. I think people sometimes are a little disappointed that there's not like a cheat code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really how you get started though, you know, especially before you have a portfolio that you can use to create a website or even an Instagram page. You have to have those first couple of people that you have enough of a relationship with to create enough trust that they take a chance on you. And that's how you get those first couple of people, those first couple of clients. And then from there you have the portfolio. And then if you want to do marketing or, you know, whatever you can. But at the beginning, you it's really about working that network and finding those first couple of people who let you co-host for them or property manage for them. And I think that's a great strategy to go if you want to get started without it's pretty incredible that you can do that without really any any money. I think one step before that that I will tell people just so that you can get familiar and feel confident offering that to someone, you do need to have some experience renting out a space. So rent out your own home. Even if it's just a shared bedroom, at least that gets you in the flow of responding to messages and understanding what people are asking for, setting pricing, seeing how that how trends move. So I do think that that's a, you know, renting out your own space, even if it's not a long-term plan, at least it's a way to get your foot in the door and then be able to earn a client's business after that. I love that. No, that's great advice for sure. What does your team look like? Because obviously you have 13 properties, you have a thriving coaching business, um, you're helping out ambassador of, of Airbnb, you're a busy, busy woman. What does your team look like? How is the support this has been such a learning process for me. And I feel like I'm finally made some good progress with it. So currently, I have a boots on the ground assistant here in Phoenix who handles, you know, anytime somebody needs to go visit a property, check on restock, check whatever it might be. She's the go to for that. She also helps with some of the guest communication and messaging. And she kind of just helps fill the gaps, everything and everywhere in between. And that was so important for me to, you know, basically have. My day-to-day was doing a lot of task work not so long ago. And I realized like this is just not what I want to be doing. I want to be growing my business. I don't want to be, you know, just the person who's responding to messages and dropping off toilet paper. That has been huge, having somebody who I can really rely on where it kind of feels like I'm two people now having having that help. And so I have her and then in each of my I have three markets. You know, two markets that I'm really focused on, Phoenix and Sedona. Um, but then I do have a couple of properties in Newport Beach, California. And in each of those markets, I really focus on building a really solid cleaning team. And so in all those locations, I have one main cleaner who is in all locations, I have 
one really awesome cleaner who I can depend on. With each of those, that process of finding that cleaner has looked, you know, just a little bit different, but I really, I rely a lot on turnover BNB. I love turnover BNB. I found two of my best cleaners through the turnover BNB marketplace. I have a cleaner and a handyman in each of those markets. And now those cleaners have their own team of cleaners, but I really like having one point of contact for myself. So to me, I have one cleaner in those markets who they bring in to help. Awesome. But that's those aren't people that I communicate with. Um, one cleaner, one handyman in each of those markets. And then my assistant is, is what the team looks like. There's people that I pull in for different jobs, but those are the people that day-to-day are are involved in in my business. And then what about some automations or softwares that you're using to kind of help your team members? Yep. That's been another big thing that I've been focusing on the last year. When I got started, and even as we've been speaking, I've been referring a lot to Airbnb business. And it's a habit that is dying hard. <laughs> um, For it's, sure. actually, it's not an Airbnb business. I have a short-term rental business. Uh, when I got started though, you know, it was Airbnb. I was only posting on Airbnb. That That's how I got started. And then, you know, maybe... I don't know, it's been maybe a couple of years ago now, I realized, man, it's going to be really important to start start advertising on other platforms and you know get a, get my own website. And so about a year ago, I would say was when I really got serious researching different different tools, different platforms, different ways that I could do this and not have it, you know, be have it be manageable. And so I started with Hospitable, which was good for a first step. It created some automations, it helped me with some automated reviews, made some of my my calendar stuff a little bit easier to look at. I, I was able to do some stuff helping um, with scheduling cleanings, but it wasn't enough for like for me for what I felt like I needed. Um so uh now I'm using Guesty and I also use so I use I rely on Guesty for all of my automated messaging for bringing I have a direct booking websites for each of my properties, verbal listings, I'm working on a few other getting on a couple of other OTAs and Guesty has been really great to bring it all under um one system has been really easy to bring my assistant in on as well. That's the property management system that I'm using. But then turnover BNB is what I rely on for my cleaning automation, which really has been kind of a game changer for me. It automates everything. It automates the scheduling automatically, schedules those cleanings for the cleaners, automatically pays the cleaner. The cleaner is able to upload photos. And then what's really nice that I'm grateful for this time of year is it also handles all of the you know tax stuff that you have to do where I would you know normally have to figure out the 1099, all that turnover BNB takes care of all that. I don't even have to think about it. So um, I rely on that for all my cleaning. And then I use Wheelhouse for my for my pricing. You know, another one I'll throw in there that I that I kind of count as an automation. Maybe that's a <laughs> it's a tool that really helps me, but is target shipped delivery. I've been using that a lot for my restock and it saved it saved me quite a bit from having to show up in person. My cleaner can let me know when she arrives at a property. We're out of this, this, this. Now it's my assistant does a orders a target shipment and it's there in two hours and it's done. There's no nothing more after that. So that's that's another little automation. A little, like a little gem. 
Oh. Not an automation. It would be cool if it was like a true automation, but it's not quite an automation, but it is something that feels like a little bit of a hack. <laughs> Turnover B&B, I think, is one thing that we're sleeping on. We, we have 17 cleaners, roughly. Mm, and so managing, managing cleaners has become a nightmare. And so talk to us a bit about the pricing structure for Turnover, Turnover B&B and how that works. Yeah. So there's two different kind of a path you can go down with Turnover BNB. If you use Turnover BNB to actually find your cleaner, and if you choose to work with a cleaner that you find through Turnover BNB's cleaning marketplace, cleaner marketplace, then you are charged a 6%, I believe it's 6% through to use the app in the software. And so for like one of my cleaners, my cleaning fee is $120. I think by the time it goes through, it's $126. So it's a little less than 6%. And that's it. There's no there's no monthly subscription. And I recognize six percent is not nothing. And I know when I'm talking to people, that is it's like that's six percent. You know what I found though is that six percent, you know, for that hundred and twenty dollar cleaning, that's a six dollar premium that I'm paying. Uh it's worth it for me for six dollars to not have to touch anything, like truly one hundred percent automated. So that's the one route you can go down. The other route, if you want to bring your cleaner in. To turnover BNB, like if you have your own cleaner, you know this sounds like it would kind of be what you would be doing if you would be bringing on any of right. your. If you were bringing them in, then you do pay a subscription. That is, I, I want. It's like I can't remember. I think it's around sixteen dollars a month, and I'm not sure if that how that breaks down like per listing. I, I I can't remember that part. I think the way you use turnover BNB is to find cleaners through the marketplace because these are cleaners who are choosing to use turnover BNB and. They're already bought into to Turnover BNB. They know the system. They know the process. You don't have to teach them how to use an app. And then if you're bringing, if you're using one of those cleaners, it makes a lot of sense. When you're bringing in a cleaner, and if you already have cleaners and you're looking for a new system, I think you have to be a little careful with that because you know cleaners, cleaners, their job at the end of the day is to show up and do a very like physical job, clean a home. A lot of the time, they're not super versed on you know apps and don't really want to. See spend the time like figuring out how to use a new app and it can feel frustrating to bring in a new system. And so I think you have to be very considerate of of that. All to say I've had the best luck with turnover B and B working with people who are already have already bought into it and then using the system that they they're already committed to rather than trying to convert my cleaners to a system that feels very foreign to them. So of my three main cleaners in those three markets that I mentioned, two of them I do 100% on Turnover BNB. One of them I am, I don't have on Turnover BNB because I found her before I knew Turnover BNB. I really like the system that we have figured out for that works for us. Um, but if for any reason I had to find another cleaner, I would 100% do it through Turnover BNB. Makes a lot of sense. Appreciate that explanation. Yeah, I love that. So we talked about cleaners. What about maintenance and handymen? So, you know, as we scale, maintenance and, and putting out these fires starts to be so cumbersome. It, it takes up most of our day. And even in our own business, we have a maintenance coordinator. You know, do you have something like that in your team or are you still managing that? And if you are, what type of systems do you have in place to kind of mitigate your sanity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know this is this is a tough one, and it's like one of those things that it's perfectly fine until it's not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's like that breaking point, <laughs> and I have found in my own business, it's uncanny how multiple things happen at the same time. Like the you don't think about one point <laughs> always at the same time. Yep. Yeah, super tricky. So I mean, I am more or less the maintenance coordinator now with my assistant. She's handling a lot of that as well. 
So what it looks like for me, I really like to work with handymen that are referred to by my cleaners. And the reason is that creates this easy system where my cleaner can help communicate things to my handyman that need attention. It's interesting. All of my in all of my markets, in all three of my markets, it's happened very similarly where I have found really great handymen that have been referred to me by the cleaner. And so what that allows is is when the cleaner we, we I have a, a system set up that looks like if the cleaner notices something that needs immediate attention, uh, she lets me know. And then I you know We'll try to get the handyman there as quickly as possible if they can be there that day while the cleaner's there. And then I let the cleaner coordinate some of that. You do have to be careful with this and know that you have a cleaner who could handle that. But that is something that I look for in my cleaners. Is something that is, you know, I, I look for cleaners who I can trust to coordinate some of that. And I do pay them. I'll give them, I'll pay them a little extra if they're having to coordinate some of that. And it creates some really good incentive to stay on top of things that need fixed and get on it right away rather than having... Because one of the most difficult things about maintenance is scheduling it. When you're working around guests, you know, trying to... Okay, when's the next checkout? This guest is going to be here for a week and a half. This should really be looked at sooner. Do we need to coordinate with the guests? And so if I... If the cleaner can let me know that there's something that needs attention and if I can get the handyman in there right away, that is the goal. That is ideal. That has been working for me. I don't have... The other thing that I do is I do HVAC checkups every quarter. Well, I should say twice a year, like right before um, summer here in Phoenix. Like AC units are working super hard and I've learned the hard way after way too many issues um, that having like a, a checkup, a make, like having a, your HVAC person out to do a checkup Make sure you've got all those filters changed, cleaning all the cleaning the system out, letting giving you a heads up if there's anything that you need to keep an eye on. That prevents a lot of HVAC issues. And then having a plumber that I trust for each of my properties that I know I can call who's familiar with my properties who I've had over before there's urgent issue. And so maintenance for me looks like just, you know, kind of a routine handyman, which is somebody that I do try to connect and find through my cleaning, my cleaners so that they can help coordinate some of that. And then HVAC repairmen who I, I can trust and a plumber who I can trust and try to get ahead of the game with that plumber and HVAC and have them familiar with the with my properties before they're having to um, yeah, fix something that's urgent. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. And and I know it's market specific, right? But what's a an hourly rate um, for a handyman going, you know, because I, I, I think we get asked that a lot. And people that are just starting out, they're like, I don't know if it's $70 an hour is good or if it's $30 an hour. What are you seeing in, the, in your three markets? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I would love to, to crowdsource that a little bit more and hear what other people are seeing. <laughs> I mean, that is, it's so tough. It's miserable feeling like they're getting ripped off, but you also want to pay for, I, you know, most people are happy to pay a little bit more to know that the job's going to get done right. So for the sure. hourly rate that I'm paying is forty to fifty dollars. I, I have one handyman who I brought in for more specialty type things like installing, you know, like light sconces that I need to be done really well. That I've paid, I think I'm, I've paid him seventy five dollars an hour. Um, but forty to fifty for kind of more routine stuff, changing AC filters, adjusting the smart lock, 
uh, adjusting like I, you know, loose toilet paper holders, loose hand <laughs> towel holders. That seems to be a really common one. Replacing toilet seats. That's been one that I've had to do several times. Adjusting the water heater, those types of things. Yeah, 50, 40 to $50 is usually what I'm paying for that. Yeah, that's what we're seeing as well. And we're in 13 markets. So 40, 50 bucks for handy minute is, is on par for us as well. All right. Phew. All right. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> what about... What about VAs? So, you know, we already talked about your team. Have you thought about using virtual assistants in your business at all? Yeah. You know, I I've, I have. I've spoken with quite a few of them. I've looked at it. You know, I think, I think there's a really good case for VAs for a business like mine and for people who are in a similar spot to me. You know, where I kind of ended up with VAs is for a long time, I felt really comfortable doing the, the work that VAs were doing. And it felt like, you know, I could do this anywhere in the world. I did spend quite a bit of time the last couple of years traveling. And so I was more focused on finding boots on the ground help while I was comfortable taking on the work that I would be hiring a virtual assistant for. You know, now I'm looking at that a little bit different. And I'm, I don't have a virtual assistant, but I am working with a team who is helping me with guest messaging. They're very specialized in guest messaging. You know, they're doing the same work that like a virtual assistant might do, but they are very focused on guest communication and revenue management. And so I do have somebody helping me now that is the work that you would hire a virtual assistant for. But I did decide not to go the route of a virtual assistant. And I think the main reason for that, you know, my last conversation with somebody who was who I got the furthest with, who I was potentially going to hire the virtual assistant, my concern was, I'm going to spend all this time like ramping up uh, this process with them. And then what if they quit? Or what if they move on to something else? Then I start from square one again. And I don't want to do that. And so that's why I kind of started looking at something that was a little bit more... Looked like it was going to... It wasn't just dependent on one person. I think that's what it came down to for me. I wanted a team... I knew I can't, I knew I, I'm not yet in a position to hire an entire team myself, but it, I didn't feel comfortable just hiring one person who at any point could say, I'm not doing this anymore, or I have other clients and you're not a priority anymore. I, I didn't want to risk that because I mean, if there's one thing I've learned this last year, it is so much work when you bring somebody new on board, even if they're fantastic and doing everything just right, it's still a ton of work to ramp up a new team member, no matter who they are, even a handyman. <laughs> So true. No, I love that. Thank you for sharing that for sure. I, and I think, you know, Aiden and I have been down the paths of both, right? Hiring our own VAs. We've looked at teams and companies. Currently, right now, as is, we have seven VAs on our team. They're all in South America. So they speak Spanish as well, which is really a good benefit because most of our portfolio is in Florida and we get a lot of Spanish speaking travelers, but they've been rock stars. And, um, you know, to your point, if, if one of them leaves, especially, you know, like our top three, it gets kind of scary and, and, uh, it's a lot of work to, to train new ones and get them in, in, in incorporated in our ecosystem. Seven VAs, are they all on the same team or are they all? Yeah, yeah. We, we've, we source them um, through Upwork, Fiverr, and then most recently through LinkedIn. LinkedIn has been a really cool resource for us because uh, not to say that we're finding better quality, but they're a lot more prepared um, to, you know, go through the interviewing process and, you know, applications and whatnot. Um, but yeah, and then, then we just train them the way that we would want them to operate. Um, so we've had success there, but always pros and cons to not having a full team. Because like you said, like you alluded to, they can leave at any time. 
and this business is it's rough you know it can be it could be very demanding and you know not to say that you're 24 7 but a lot of the time they do need to be on call and it can be aggressive you know so something to always be mindful of and cognizant of that is very interesting you know i think now it, it is changing even two years ago finding a VA or, you know, maybe go back to when I first started several years ago, finding a VA that was specialized in this type of role was a lot harder than it is now. And so I do think it is getting easier to find people and find people who have experience and find people where it is a little bit less work to ramp up and onboard because the job's very similar regardless. You know, if you're, if you're handling all the messaging for a home, it really doesn't matter who the owner is. It's going to look very similar. And so you can find people with a little more experience now, it seems. Um, yeah, interesting. Some good food for thought, LinkedIn. Yeah. And, and I feel like it would be foolish if we didn't talk about design with you because you know, you're a big proponent. You're crushing it in the design world. One thing that I think people constantly ask is, you know, how much does a three-bedroom you know, property cost to furnish. And there's really probably not a good metric, but maybe you have one figured out or maybe you have an idea of what you generally land at. So let's talk about budget for for furniture and then also maybe where you're finding most of your furniture at. Design is, I think in a lot of ways, what was the first thing that appealed to me so much about this industry. I love the idea of preparing homes for people to come and stay. That just like delights me so much. Budget is hard. In my own properties, it has varied so much when I'm spending on one property, the next property. And also my process has changed a lot as I've learned what is important to spend money on and what is important to spend money on. So the easy answer to budget, my very basic formula is start with a $4,000 budget for a start with $4,000 for like a studio. And I'm talking everything like this is all in this is like everything that goes in the drawers in the kitchen, you know, the vacuum, this is everything about four grand is I think about what where you're going to be for a like a studio very, very basic, and then add two grand for every room after that. So if you have a one bedroom, six grand, If you have a two bedroom, eight grand, Do you have a two bedroom with a patio might be closer to 10 grand if you want to like do something with that patio. So two, and that's like so rough because it's, it can so easy. But that's what I've kind of found when I look across all of my projects. And when I average out what I've spent, that is like the most consistent thing I've been able to come up with. And maybe you're not necessarily spending $2,000 on the patio, but if you have a home with a patio, you might have more living space that you are also buying a plant for, buying curtains for the window. That's the best I can do in giving somebody like a ballpark, how much is it going to cost to furnish my short-term rental? And I will say that is when you are shopping smart and being pretty thrifty. Um, The moment you are wanting to buy brand name anything or any splurge items, it goes up from there. So I would say that's pretty much... That's not buying used. That is still buying new, but that's buying a lot from places like Amazon, Wayfair, Target, not places like Westone, Pottery Barn, places like that. So now for new properties, when I first got started, I was pretty scrappy and I was a lot more willing um, than I am now to price shop. And it's like time is money and there's only so much time you can, you know, once you're trying to scale even a little bit, there's just not time to find the best deal on velvet curtains. Now I, I don't price shop as much anymore. And I also have learned that buy nice or buy twice. 
especially for certain for certain items. And so I'm a lot more willing to spend a little bit more. So probably if I look at those numbers again, what I'm spending is a little bit more than what I just described with that 4000 plus two for each living space. Would you say that's pretty consistent with what, what you guys are at? Or does that sound low or high? For us, we definitely spend more than that. <laughs> a lot more. So I'm embarrassed now. Yeah. It looks like no, we're... I, I mean, I just did... Uh, there. Yesterday, um, my friend just put out a YouTube video that goes into a lot of detail on my most recent project. And that was a three bed, two bath, and it was 25 pounds. So that is, and that was because I was appealing to a more, um, yeah, more luxury market. It was actually a little bit more than that. So it looks so many different ways. But for somebody who's really just wanting to get their foot in the door and get started with their very first property, it can be done. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that. Especially especially if they're they're scrappy and it's their first property or it's an arbitrage deal. You really have to be aware of where you're spending your money. And uh, I definitely think it can be done. You know, shopping on Facebook Marketplace, supplementing with, with Target and Wayfair and Amazon, like you mentioned, for sure. And that is a really good point. Budget for furnishing a space for like a rental arbitrage versus a property that you own and plan to keep in your portfolio for a while. That Very should different look story. Different. Should yeah. look different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a nice thought to think, oh, I'll just buy all this furniture, but and I can just use it somewhere else or sell it and make all my money back. And I did think that early on. It's not true. <laughs> it's hard to take a yeah to earn money back on your furniture or even to move it to another space. It doesn't always fit or match. And things break when you move them. So all to say, when I'm furnishing a space that I own, that I plan to keep for a while, I'm much more willing to spend you know, two, three, four times on a sofa that fits the space, that belongs there, that looks perfect. Uh, because I know it's going to stay there versus a rental arbitrage unit that maybe I'll have for two years. Um, and then what? No, I love that. And, and you said, you know, buy nice or buy twice. I really like that motto. Where are you shopping that is nice in, in your mind? Yeah. So recently, have you heard of Minoan? Yep. Yep. So I really love Minoan. And Minoan has deals with a, a lot of the retailers that people love right now. So West Elm, Pottery Barn, Crate and Barrel, Arhas. Yeah, I think those are the big ones that I is where I'm going when I'm spending a little bit more at William and Sonoma. Yeah, those are the places where I'm spending just a little bit, a little bit more. And it's not just because you're shopping those brands doesn't mean you're immediately getting quality. You know, there's a lot of quality that you can find on Amazon. So it's 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 a little bit of a learned process. And I think it's important not to be too hard on yourself. Like it's okay to learn the hard lesson of, oh yeah, these kitchen pans are terrible and not worth the money that I spent. That's okay. You can learn and just, you know, adapt and change for the next time around. But that is where I'm going for nicer furniture and where it is paying off. Like what I'm noticing from some of the items that I bought from Amazon or Wayfair. And little side note, there's also quality on Amazon Wayfair. But some of the things that I'm finding is like, you know, the leg breaks off of the accent chair or the um, the bed frame comes on loose or the bed frame breaks. Like these are things that are less likely to happen when you're spending a little bit more on furniture. And the other big one that I love is Article. Article, in my experience, has been true quality where I do feel like on those other brands that I mentioned, it can be a little hit or miss and it is you kind of have to learn. Article, I have, you know, knock on wood so far, been able to really depend on them for quality and for things that look really nice and actually, you know, are don't break and last. And and you also mentioned, you know, there there's places within the home that you would rather spend 
your money and save in other places of, of the property. Where do you see, you know, the best bang? Like, are you spending it on your your big furniture items, like your beds, your tables, things like that? Yep, my strategy is for each bedroom or living space, and I kind of think about it in terms of photos. Photos are so important. So for each area of the home, finding one item, just choosing one item to splurge or spend on. And doesn't necessarily mean you have to splurge on it, but one item that is going to be, you know, is good quality that will last, that looks like quality and that will really convey in a photo. And thinking about that for each room and starting with that and then designing around it. So the way that looks in this last project that I did is it's, you know, in the living room, it's accent chairs from, from article. They are a little bit more expensive than what I would typically pay for accent chairs. But I decided that those were going to be my, my staple piece. And then I was going to design around it. I only spent, you know, less than $200 on the rug that's underneath it. And right around that for the coffee table and the, the, the quality and aesthetic of those accent chairs kind of lifts and levels up everything else that's around it. And so that's the way I look at it. I would say with furniture pieces, you know, sofas, I feel like I've gone both directions on. I've gotten super inexpensive sofas. and I've splurged on, on sofas. I feel like for each property, it's more about deciding for this home, for this space, what is the item that is going to, you know, be the one that's going to catch guests' attention? Like what, what is it that this space needs? It's been like before I've splurged on it on a really nice lamp that kind of becomes a staple piece that I'm designing around. So with furniture, I would say I really, I really do try to look at the space. Maybe I want to focus if I'm, I'm at a home with a pool, I'm thinking about, you know, a staple piece that is really going to bring that hero image home to highlight the pool with really nice lounge chairs and a cute little outdoor side table. And then maybe I'm spending less on the living room furniture. So for furniture, that's how that looks. And I would say with beds, it's, kind of the same. I it depends on on the space and what I'm trying to play up and where I want to you know, really draw guest attention. Love that. Awesome. So let's assume that I have zero properties, right? I, I'm listening to this podcast for the first time. What would be your advice for me? Based on my own experience, my advice is even if you're going to get started just on Airbnb, have a plan from day one to get on other OTAs and have a direct booking website. Even if you're not, you don't need to do it day one, but have a plan. You know, don't have your sole plan be Airbnb. Don't be an Airbnb business. Be a short-term rental. Yeah, that's right. That would be the short, succinct way of saying it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, especially now with how things are. Yeah, I it. And then if you had a crystal ball, where do you see the short-term rental market headed in 2024? You know, on that note, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more direct bookings. I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on targeting previous guests, host targeting previous guests and trying to get previous finding different strategies for uh, marketing to return guests. And yeah, a lot more focus on on direct bookings. You know, I think in the past, I know for me, the big thing holding me back with direct bookings was... How do I make sure I'm covered? How do I make sure I'm protected? Like relying so heavily on Airbnb's air cover policy. How do I match that when, with direct bookings? And what I'm finding is there's a lot of awesome solutions for that now that haven't been around that long. And so I think that combined with a lot of solutions for collecting email addresses, this is going to start changing the game just a little bit. It's giving hosts, even small scale hosts, a lot more tools to grow their business that doesn't just look like you know, an Airbnb listing. And if you could leave the audience or the listeners with one last blue gem, 
It could be about business. It could be about short-term rentals. It could be about design or life. Anything you wanted to leave, what would that be? Find a host community who you can trust and who you can rely on. For me, it was I had a good year or two that felt pretty lonely in this industry. I didn't really know other hosts. I didn't really have people that I could ask easily ask questions. And that started to shift about two years ago. And now I feel like I have that. And it means the world to me to when I run into something that's kind of tough, or I need some advice on which type of software to use, no matter what it is, or I just need a friend for a moment. It has changed my world to feel like I have a host community that I can lean on and depend on and ask questions. And so, you know, focus on that, make it a priority, be willing to show up at meetups, um, be willing to chime in on a Facebook group page or, you know, it can look so many different ways. Um, but I do think that that's important if you want to do this long term. Beautiful. And uh, where can people find you? Instagram is what I'm most active on. And my handle is Airbrindy. The I have a website, www.airbrindy.com. And uh, that'll be updated soon. That's where I, I try to keep that updated with all the links where you can sign up for coaching and uh, get help with design services. If you have a home in any of the markets that I'm in, you can look at, at helping you with property management. So that's all on my website. So Instagram and uh, yeah. Website. Awesome. What an amazing episode. Really appreciate it, Brindy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you both. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio, in networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.